Hi, this is Ethan Russell, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. We wanted to be them. We wanted to be the Beatles. We were not looking to marry them or date them. We wanted to be them. And so... We had to get guitars, you know, and we had our mom, it was a great seamstress, and she made us, um, for our little band that we put together, four girls of us, um, little uniforms that were the same as the Beatles, except with skirts. (laughs) Today's guest is Nancy Wilson, an American musician, singer, songwriter, producer, and film composer. She rose to fame alongside her older sister, singer Ann Wilson, as the guitarist and backing vocalist in the rock band Heart. Raised near Seattle, Washington, in the suburb of Bellevue, Wilson began playing music as a teenager. During college, she joined her sister Ann, who was lead vocalist for the band Heart, the first hard rock group fronted by women. In their heyday, Hart released numerous albums throughout the 1970s and 80s, including Dreamboat Annie, Little Queen, and Dog and Butterfly which generated hit singles such as Magic Man, Crazy On You, Barracuda, Straight On, and Dog and Butterfly. The band later enjoyed commercial success with a trio of albums, including the self-titled Heart, Bad Animals, and Brigade, along with a raft of hits such as What About Love, Never, These Dreams, Nothing At All, Who Will You Run To, Alone, and All I Want To Do Is Make Love To You. To date, Heart has sold over 35 million records, Over the years, Nancy Wilson has earned her place as a celebrated guitarist, especially for the ways in which she blends elements of flamenco and classical guitar styles with hard rock. In 2016, Gibson ranked Wilson as the eighth greatest female guitarist of all time. She is also an accomplished singer in her own right, serving as the lead vocalist for the song These Dreams, which became Hart's first number one single on the Billboard Hot 100. In 2013, Wilson was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Heart. In 2021, she released her first solo album entitled You and Me, including For Edward, a moving instrumental tribute to guitar legend Eddie Van Halen, and the title track, You and Me, featuring Sue Innes, Wilson's songwriting collaborator since the 1970s. Welcome, Nancy Wilson. When it comes to early adopters, one doesn't have to look much further than Nancy Wilson. You know, the Beatles were my 
the reason I ever got into music to begin with, um, other than being in a musical family, but when the, when the Beatles landed, like the lunar landing, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show in February 64, to be exact. And, um, you know, that changed the trajectory of my, the rest of my entire life. What was it like to grow up in a very musical family? Yeah, we, um, we all sang a lot in our family, our aunts and uncles and grandparents, and played ukuleles, and there was a lot of piano and um, just a lot of fun old, you know, like Irish pub songs and things that our grandparents taught us, off-color stuff, you know, songs about the great Titanic, you know, from their era, from the turn of the last century. And um, so, you know, we had all that kind of, we were steeped in musicality to begin with and, and sort of vaudevillian kind of stuff too, you know, like the, the earlier eras and, and all the, all the pop music and blues and stuff that was always, they were always spinning records on the record player with, you know, Peggy Lee and Judy Garland and Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. So there was all that, all this music, um, surrounding us already in our lives. And when the Beatles showed up on, on our black and white TV screen, (laughs) um, (laughs) it was like, uh, it was like the, it was like a lightning bolt and it was like the calling, you know, the, the call of the great beyond, you know, must have guitars, must have guitars. So we were, we were just smitten and they had so much humor about them and they were so so exotically different looking with their hair and they had all this kind of sexy sexy energy you know and they were cute and um they were obviously really good at their music because they played they got really tight together and just you know it was just one of those things where we wanted to be them. We wanted to be the Beatles. We were not looking to marry them or date them. We wanted to be them. And so we had to get guitars, you know, and we had our mom. It was a great seamstress. And she made us um, for our little band that we put together, four girls of us, um, little uniforms that were the same as the Beatles, except with skirts. (laughs) So this was clearly serious business, this early love of the Beatles. When we saw the Beatles play live in 66, their last tour at the Seattle Coliseum, you know, we, we went, the four of us all went, we called ourselves the viewpoints and we went to see the Beatles play with our with our Beatles uniforms on, you know, and we were the the only um, probably the only people in the whole Coliseum that were not screaming their heads off because we had to study it because we were going to be them. So we had to study with our opera glasses, you know, with our binoculars, um, every little every move, every little John was chewing gum, you know. George made a little dance happen and Paul, you know, really shook his hair all around and it was just really a, an amazing thing to see. 
the Beatles live. <laughs> so you were there as professionals. If you were older, this would have been a professional outing. It would even have been tax deductible, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a professional outing. It was a, you know, kind of a sabbatical idea. Like, here's what we go. We came to study, you know. And <laughs> I wish they would pipe down so we could hear better, you know. Who were the members of the viewpoints during this time? It was me and my sister Anne, obviously the you know the the two of us in cahoots as usual, and a couple of our girlfriends from high school that my my one of my best girlfriends and one of her best girlfriends from our schools, and we kind of taught them how to sing the you know one of they were all I guess they were both of them were in choir, so we taught them how to sing the harmony parts for the Beatles songs and for all the other association songs and stuff that was on the radio at the time. A lot of harmony singing. <laughs> and me and Anne played guitars, so acoustics, you know. So so we had a little group, and we sort of enlisted friends from school to be the four of us to try to be the be- like the Beatles. And... Um, yeah, we played in we played at schools. We played in living rooms. We played around bonfires. We played in municipal hallways that had good echo. <laughs> sitting sitting in, on concrete steps, you know. What uh, what were those first guitars? Um, I had a really cheap bad guitar. It was a thirty dollar guitar. Um, Anne had the good guitar, but mine was uh, a Lyle guitar and it had a, a an adjustable it had a bridge at the bottom of it that was attached at the bottom but it would not stay in place so the bridge itself was always kind of shifting around so I learned how to like keep it in better tune by moving the actual bridge as I, as I was playing it and it it was like a it was like a um, pipe shaped neck and it, and the strings were a mile off of the fretboard, so it was you know impossible to bar an F chord. You, you just I couldn't bar an F chord to save my life, but I did get I did get a lot stronger trying to learn how to make that guitar sound good. And eventually, I got a real good guitar. I used to go down to the the Ma and Pa Music Store, Bandstand East down there in Bellevue. Lake Hills and uh, pick up a really good guitar and sit, sit there and play it and show off. <laughs> and when you were, when you were going, you know, to the, to the Seattle show, which must've been great for Anne with it ending with uh, long tall Sally, which was undoubtedly in the heart or maybe earlier the viewpoint set list at one point, right? Long Tall Sally. Yeah, we did that in heart. When you were there in Seattle uh, at the show, were you you were already thinking, this is going to be my job, and you weren't kidding around. No, I mean, I never had another, another job in my whole life other than music, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, I, I, I was aimed at such a young age. I started playing around nine years old, so that's all I wanted to do, and... I was just possessed, you know, and obsessed with it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I babysat some people and I gave a few guitar lessons here and there. And I, 
I did some math tutoring kind of stuff, but for no real job to speak of except music. <laughs> I ask because it's fascinating to me, particularly during that, that very brief era when these weren't jobs yet. Indeed, they may have been considered professions uh, that you would be carrying out on the way to doing something else uh, sooner or later. So George Martin, when he began as the Beatles producer, they didn't really have a word yet to call him producer. Rock photographers weren't rock photographers quite yet. Um, it was just something you did. Same thing would be rock journalists. Uh, uh, they, they simply weren't uh, a dedicated profession of sorts yet, which makes you, as a musician, a kind of pioneer in more ways than one. Right. In the covered wagons. Right. We didn't have the first clue that we were breaking any glass ceilings at first because we were probably too young to really have any kind of sexual identity attached to it all. We we just wanted to be players, you know, singers and players and be in a band and kind of a, like a family business kind of thing. And, you know, like the Von Trapps. But then we got, you know, we, we still would sit around with our grand aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and, and still play guitars and sing, you know, popular radio music around with the family all the time. And including the old stuff that we learned from the old ones and, the new stuff that they that they enjoyed hearing on the on the radio, and so we um, it was just part of our lives, you know. We actually did go play professionally at one point at a uh, a, a Vashon Island folk festival or something like that, and we put on our little granny dresses that looked like nightgowns. <laughs> And, you know, we, we played some Peter, Paul and Mary stuff and some Beatles stuff and, you know, protest music by Bob Dylan and you know, the viewpoints, you know, you have to play a protest songs if you're called the viewpoints. You guys must have really been mixing it up out there at that festival. Yeah, these little white kids from Bellevue, right? Having big world opinions. But um, yeah, and we got a couple of gigs and one of them was in a uh, in a drive-in theater where before they started the movie the film at at sundown there was like a podium where somebody could get up and talk and instruct you know instruct the people in their cars at the drive-in theater you know how to attach their speakers to the windows or something and so so we played at this podium with one microphone standing around, <laughs> standing around and you know it was such a it was like so exciting cuz people in their cars were listening to us you know in their cars and and we got paid something I think it was 20 bucks or something like that and um you know we we played a couple of high school <laughs> we played at a high school dance with our dad's reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder in record <laughs> as our PA system. <laughs> so, you know, it was just really um, all very uh, basic stuff. And, and you know, we had, we got really nervous and excited and, 
it was just so professional to us, you know. And a real stage was a long ways away from those days. But, but yeah, thanks to the Beatles, we, were, we played at the drive-in theater. And it wouldn't be long, of course, until those drive-in theaters became ballrooms, arenas, and then stadia. More from Nancy Wilson from Heart after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Nancy Wilson, and I got to ask, when did you make that important transition from we've got to be like the Beatles to we must become songwriters like the Beatles? Becoming a songwriter um, was 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 a little clumsy at first <laughs> because they, we wrote some really pretty bad songs. Like we wrote a song called. Uh, to see you like I've never known anything like this before just to see you I don't need any more you know (laughs) to see the wind blow your hair in the breeze standing there to see you really bad I mean just the worst and um, that's really dramatic stuff (laughs) very dramatic (laughs) Right. And then we got a little better, you know, we kind of, we kind of imitated stuff we loved. And I think through the process of, and the osmosis of imitating what you love, that's kind of how you figure out your own voice and your own style, you know, by, by copying other people. (laughs) What was it like then when you're in the viewpoints and you're starting to to write those first songs and you're watching and listening as the Beatles go from the guys you saw in February 64 to different guys you saw in August 1966 in Seattle Live and then Revolver comes out and then Sgt. Pepper and the White Album. What, what, what What was that ride like? That was an amazing ride. I mean, when you consider how poppy pop music, how they started so pop and they rocked a lot too, but you know, kind of R and B wise, but they, 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 they shape shifted. It was like going to a classroom. Every time a new album came out, it would be like, okay, this is the class we're going to this year or these next few months, this is our new, this is our new language we're going to learn. And this is, you know, what we, this is how we speak and this is how we sing. And this is what we, this is how we're going to grow our hair. And these are the clothes we're going to wear. And this is like the mind expanded um, character of who we're going to become and who we're going to recognize on the street if their mind expanded too. So there was like a whole underground, you know, cultural kind of flash mob really um, that, that they were creating. 
you know, with every album that they, they released. Sgt. Pepper was, uh, I mean, I can't tell you if I like Revolver better or Sgt. Pepper better or, you know, even the White Album. They're all equally as amazing and they're so different, all of them. And they represent uh, all these great nooks and crannies of life, you know, that they describe. <laughs> and, and they're essential, right? I mean, we shouldn't have to pick one over the other. It's this. Yeah. You know, we start off with Love Me Do and we end with Abbey Road. There is nothing else like that in the history of art. That's for sure. I mean, and the whole thing happened in the span of five years? Seven. Seven years, two months. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite exact about it. Well, I, uh, I got that from, uh, you know, the, the great Abbey Road studio uh, one-time head, Ken Townsend, who invented ADT and other things like that. And we were talking, we were in the studio there, and he said, you know, what kills me is it's the only thing that we talk about here. And it was a blink of an eye. Yeah, I know. The whole, the whole world was so changed in those seven years and two months. Um, for the better, you know, for the better. And, um, and then, you know, after there, there was kind of a, a beautiful thing, a transition even after that with the solo work of John and, and Paul and George and Ringo after that too. Um, you know, Ringo was always the comic relief in a sort of great way. And, um, but George did All Things Must Pass, which was a beautiful, beautiful album. And then, of course, John's Imagine and all the stuff he did. And, and Paul's new album today is really amazing. Have you heard of it? Have you heard it yet? I have. Yeah, I, uh, I love the, um, I don't think he's ever done this before. The way he uses the acoustic as a lead in that very first song. I love that. I, I love how it starts. Yeah. It's arresting, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. I feel sometimes just lucky that we've been alive at the same time they were. Oh, for sure. That's for real. I mean, I've said that a billion times, but how lucky are, are we to have grown up with that, with that kind of music and all the music of those, those, the eras, you know, in the seventies too, you know, with, with Neil Young and Pink Floyd and, and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and just Joni Mitchell and so much incredible music. So lucky to grow up with. <laughs> well, absolutely. And it flowers from that, that, that those moments in the sixties with all that great songwriting. It just, uh, I, in fact, in some ways outside of the Beatles, not being, you know, a sort of main attraction, the seventies could be argued to be better uh, in terms of, you know, Zeppelin and, you know, we could go on and, and, and a band called Art, which uh, I was listening to very, very much then. When was it that it shifted into a period where, you, you know, you got your big break? What would the big break look like? Um, uh, the big break happened when we were, you know, um, successful. When I joined the band, right about the time we were 
recording the first album, Dreamboat Annie. And we were playing out in a lot of different uh, Canadian towns, mostly the cabaret-type places. And we, we were playing in this one dinner club. We got fired from there because Anne made some... Um, kind of snide remark from the stage about the food at the dinner club. And now it tastes kind of like Lysol, you know? <laughs> Which is not a resounding, that's not a rave review. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were promptly let go and, um, you know, not without building a small fire in the backstage ashtray or something, but we had our little rebellion and then we walked out. But, uh, same day, we got the same night, we got an offer to open for Rod Stewart um, across on the other end of Canada in, in Montreal. So we got on the train in Vancouver and rode to Montreal to open for Rod Stewart, which just was a fluke because whatever happened to his opener – I don't remember something went wrong with his opener and we were, we were starting to get some heat because our album had come just barely come out. And um, so we got on that big stage in Montreal and people in Montreal had heard our song and they knew the song and they all lit up. It was, I think it was magic man and they lit their lighters up, you know, and it was like a sea of of a heaven, you know, a heaven of of lighters, you know. It was like, wow, they love our song. Oh my god, we don't even speak French. <laughs> and you made that record in, in Vancouver, right? Dreamboat Annie. Yeah, we did. It was yeah, um, Canbase Studio. Was that your first studio experience, or or had you guys been in studios before? There was one tiny studio in Seattle where we we recorded a little two singles um, with uh, for for some some country western people that wanted Anne to sing the demos for them because they liked her voice and there was one extra um, side on the second single that was open so we put one of our originals on actual on an actual you know vinyl record so it exists it was a topaz label <laughs> and there's there, there's a few floating around i think i have one somewhere that was a chair you know it was just a hole in the wall downtown seattle so the the studio in vancouver seemed like a huge big professional you know massive recording studio with, you know, double glass and everything and, you know, isolation booths and, and, you know, a machine room and all this stuff and a great room and a control room. And, um, we came back there like quite a few years later just to do a, like a radio thing or something. And it was the, it was a really a tiny studio. <laughs> It was like, it was so interesting how at the beginning of your, you know, your hopefulness and your career, beginnings of a career, 
perception. It was like, this is the, this is as good as it'll get, you know. Writing the songs for that record has always struck me as being very Beatlesque, not because they sound like the Beatles, but because the Beatles are structurally interesting, and there you are writing structurally interesting songs with verses and choruses and bridges, middle eights. Oh yeah, the bridges, the bridges they did were always great departures. There's a wonderful one in writing "Crazy on You" that where. Um, it, the, the song actually goes into another world. <laughs> or Magic Man, right? I mean, it goes on. A, that's a journey <laughs> that happens in Magic Man. Yeah, you go through all kinds of places in Magic Man for sure. Um, even Barracuda, it's, uh, you know, that's like a, a, a charging steed of a song, but um, it has all those weird little beats that, go missing here and there and it's not as simple as it might appear but we always wanted to have departures and you know in the 70s those were the times like with bands like yes and bands like rush and you know there were opus it was the the time of opuses and (laughs) you'd have departure over here and another departure over there and and then what about this part? And then back to the other part, you know. So it was just not too simple. And a lot of songs were very, very long as well. Oh, yeah. And people expected them to be not just long, but good. Those journeys needed to be good journeys, right, for people to put their time in. When you and Anne would sit down to write a song, was it was it an organic thing where you'd have a eureka moment or were you, were you just saying to yourselves, we got to write some songs here. There's an album that has to be made. Um, I think, you know, starting out, we were really inspired to be musicians and to play original music and not just be a club band that was always doing smoke on the water, you know, <laughs> um, you know, or, or my woman from Tokyo or, the Bowie song or the, you know, all those songs. But, um, so we, we had the intention to, you know, um, make our own story in our music so that we can, so we could tell, um, an inspiring story to people that, um, were willing and open to listen to stuff that was poetic, you know, and not just, not just muscular or sexual, just um, or just boy girl stuff, but stuff that takes you like on a little um, sailing trip, like Dreamboat Annie is, is like a little sailboat, you know. And you, we wanted to make a concept album. We, had, we were thinking pretty big in the, in those days, <laughs> a concept album where you know. The, the the theme, the recurring motif comes back at the end and and there's an extra poem written on the on the album artwork and um and there there was a, a theme running through it where there was the soul of the sea and there was, you know, um just a lot of you know, angles and lenses to look through and and you know, romance to consider and um, ways to talk. (laughs) 
but but in in wonderfully high-minded ways, right? Where you you speak in poetic language, uh, right. and you know all the parts of the song matter. Just leave it to a couple of uppity females to get that idea. One of the things that just always moves me about your music is how you can go from something very tender like Dog and Butterfly, uh, but have this really, uh, this serious tension, like like the uh, opening riff for Barracuda, or, or one that uh, I find very exciting, almost like Helter Skelter, is Baby Lestrange. Well, no, I, I appreciate that because that's my riff and I, um, I wanted to lay down some law with it, you know, like, da, 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 you know, meaning I came to play, you know, I mean, I really mean business with this riff, you know, no kidding. And there's what, uh, and coming in with that arresting line, you know, that was kind of actually, um, that, you know, lifted from an actual fan letter, uh, yeah, it's got to be you reading my letter, you know, uh, not your hired hand. Like, I hope this is really you reading this letter. And, you know, you blew my mind and I saw you somewhere and, you know, you're 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 so strange and cool, you know, so that it's actually, you know, from from real it's from a real story. There is absolutely so much to adore on this new album, the title track, You and Me. Um, which in such a beautiful way talks about your longtime collaboration with Sue Innes. And then there's For Edward, really touching uh, tribute to Eddie Van Halen. go it's even made more powerful not just with your exquisite playing but also with those little flourishes of perhaps van halen's biggest song jump you know it's when i was thinking of dreaming up the song for edward um it was so daunting because i had to avoid it and avoid it and avoid it and avoid it and avoid it because it was so much pressure to say that I was going to do it and that actually do it. So, <laughs> so I finally, I finally in, you know, like waking up, lying in bed and falling asleep, lying in bed, dreamed it up in my, in my own head. And then I, then I knew how to go start to learn how to play it. So it was a dreamy little moment for me. And then it's like, I can't make it too hard, you know. It just has to be sweet and like a little prayer, a little guitar prayer for a great guitar player. Well, it is absolutely masterful, and I got to say on behalf of so many music fans out there, thank you for all that you do. 
that's all I know how to do <laughs> is do music. So thanks. I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>